Welcome to the weekly podcast at Second Ponce de Leon Baptist Church. My name is Doc Hollingsworth. I'm senior pastor of this great congregation, and we're delighted that you've joined us. Our prayer for you is that as you listen to this message, you might feel closer to God and closer to God's hope for you. Beautiful people, as we continue in worship, our scripture reading will come from the gospel according to John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And for you all following along that are sitting in those beautiful pews, you're going to find in the Pew Bible, it's page 874. And so friends, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8 from the New Revised Standard Version says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii? and the money given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. When I finished seminary at the McAfee School of Theology, I went as the associate pastor of First Baptist Church in Athens. And one of the first couples that I met there, one of my first weeks as minister, came up to me. And, and the wife kind of pushed the husband to the side. And she said, I, I need to just go ahead and say, excuse me for my husband. He was the best I could do with the list I had at the time. <laughs> I don't know what list Doc had at the time when he was looking for people to fill in, but I'm glad that I could be a part of this family of faith's journey over the next couple of months, and I look forward to our time together. A few weeks ago, we were having a family discussion around the dinner table, and we were talking about Disney World. We had several groups of friends who were preparing to take spring break trips with their families, different trips, uh, different groups around the same time, and they were all excited about what they were going to see at Disney World. They were going to go, some of them, and see the Star Wars exhibit, and then there were others who were going to go and see the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. And one of my daughters is a big Star Wars fan, and the other is really into Harry Potter these days. And I know at some point we'll be making that trip too. But where we got stuck in our conversation that evening is when we started to talk about what that trip might cost. If you've been to Disney World in the last few years, 
you know what I'm talking about. And I began to think about it. You know, if all that people who went to Disney World considered, if all they considered was the cost of what it takes to get a place to stay and get tickets for the day or to buy food and snacks and drinks and toys and lightsabers and wands, all of that, if, if that's all you considered was the cost of all of that, I doubt there would be as many people at Disney World as there is. In fact, I would argue that Disney doesn't even want you to think about the cost of what you spend in their parks. That's the genius of these ubiquitous armbands that they have that they give to people when they go to the parks now. Everywhere you go, whatever it costs, you just scan it, and it just runs up a tab for you. And at the end of your trip, you get the bill, and you're too exhausted at that point to even fight it, so you just pay it, right? It's genius. Cost is not the main metric that people use when they think about taking that kind of trip, is it? No, we decide to spend that kind of money because of the value of the experience that we hope to have with those we are with. We decide what that experience together is worth to us, and that sets the price of what we are willing to pay. What is it worth, really? I do a lot of the grocery shopping in our house, and I can tell you that some of the items that I regularly buy are valued differently these days than they were maybe three years ago. Some of you may have noticed that, too. Is it the cost of production or transport that's changed? Is it perception or true scarcity of items? What are these items worth, really? I have a friend whose business has seen a, a more than 80% reduction in the inventory that he is able to keep on hand at his store. And it isn't because the consumer values what he sells any more or any less than they did before, but it is partly because the workers who are in the supply chain have made a different valuation of what their time and what their lives are worth. And the difference of opinion between those workers and those who would be paying them has disrupted the normal flow and movement of inventory. What are they worth, really? We do valuations all the time, don't we? And our valuation of something depends on where we are and what we know and what we want or how we see something or maybe the energy or capital that we want to expend or even sometimes what we've been through in our lives. Right now, I would imagine in this neighborhood, there is someone who is trying to set a value for what they think their home is worth and what the market will bear. And they're setting that value as high as possible because they want to get the most back for their investment that they've made in their home. And right now, there's probably someone else who's driving around in that very same neighborhood, maybe on the phone with a real estate agent, trying to figure out, What's the very minimum that they can offer for that house, 
right? Hoping that an appraisal will come in lower than they think it might so that they might have the most leverage to be able to live in the neighborhood. What is it worth, really? Judas has an idea of what something is worth, doesn't he? His is the only clear verbal valuation that is made in this passage of Scripture for today. The perfume, he says, is worth 300 denarii. And maybe he kept his eye on such things, on the speculation of such things. But according to him, that's what this bottle of pure nard could have been sold for, which was the equivalent of nearly a year's wages which is an extravagant amount, isn't it? And Judas would know because he was the one who held the common purse. The narrator lets us in a little bit on Judas's character. Along with carrying the common purse, we're told, Judas also used to steal from it a little bit when he had opportunity or need. I actually don't like that detail in John's gospel. I wish that had been left out because that makes it easy for us to let Judas off the hook and say, well, Judas doesn't, I, I can't find myself there with Judas. It's a smokescreen for his false piety. Judas proclaims the perfume should have been sold and the money given to the poor, which we look at it on its face value that's a laudable action right sell what you have give it to the poor do everything that you can to impact the needs of the most marginalized and that's a laudable thing for Judas to say but selling the money and preparing to give it to the poor also means what that that money is going to come to whose pocket to Judas's right And even if he would have stolen some of that money for his own purposes, his keeping of the common purse meant that any money that was given to the poor comes from whose pocket? Judas's, right? Judas is the one who keeps the purse, so he's the one who gives out the money. Which means that when the money is given out to the poor, he would be the one doing it. He would be the one there in front handing that money out. He would be the one building up social capital there with the poor, with the recipients of his generosity. Judas' valuation, it isn't about helping the poor, a truth that Jesus knows full well. Judas's valuation is about himself and his ego needs which go ahead of all others. His need to receive a higher valuation from others. It means that he would be willing to sell something out of immeasurable worth. And what, what was the amount? 30 pieces of silver, right? It's never enough, is it? When we look for worth or when we value ourselves through the things that we can own or sell or buy or hold, those things that are supposed to signify wealth or popularity or status or meaning, if our worth is rooted in those things that can be amassed and gained and piled on and gathered up, 
it will never be enough. Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain, but we live in a world where to gain is to gain and to give away like Christ is to die. For Judas, this moment wasn't about giving away to the poor. It was about what he could gain for himself when he put himself at the center instead of Christ being at the center. With Judas's act, Christ wouldn't be the one glorified. It would be Judas who would be the one glorified. Mary's valuation is altogether different, isn't it? We can imagine why that is. It comes in the very first sentence of this passage. Where are we? We're in Bethany, at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He who once was dead is now sitting at the table with Jesus. Just a short time ago, there was weeping and wailing at the loss of their loved one, and now they are passing plates for seconds. Just a short time ago, people were saying, if only you had been there in time, Jesus. And now they're gathered together with Jesus having one of those, oh, you should have been there kinds of times. Just days ago, we were hearing about the stench of death and the grave that had robbed these sisters of their brother and Jesus of his friend. And now the scent of new life and the celebration of the good gifts of grace between these dear beloved friends, it perfumes the entire house. Mary understood the lesson that she had received. And in that way, she's actually in this moment more of a disciple than some of those who have been called out by Jesus by name. She saw firsthand how the love of God fully revealed in the life and ministry of Jesus could bring new life up out of the grave And as deeply as she had experienced the death of her brother, she had also seen with her very eyes how Jesus was able to speak new life into this world where there had been death. What other response should you make but to offer yourself as a servant? What other response is there to give in this moment but to pour out everything of value in witness to the one who is the source of the good gifts of God's grace that you have received? In her commentary, Carol Newsom reminds us that Jesus is soon to give a new commandment to his disciples. He will say, as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. She says in this act, in the depth and extravagance of Mary's gift, we realize that Mary is the first one in John's gospel to live out Jesus' love commandment. Mary's response to Jesus is appropriate for her experience, and the whole house is touched by her generosity. 
As we hear this passage of scripture for today, we are anticipating what happens in just a few weeks, aren't we? We know the ultimate act of Jesus' love that this act of Mary's discipleship foreshadows. And in that, we are invited to see another valuation. We see in this act of Jesus' love for us anticipated is that when it comes to valuations, Jesus has already set the market. There is no amount of haggling. There's no amount of leverage that you can gain or lose, no amount of shares that you can purchase to gain a majority to change the valuation. If Jesus' death is indeed a witness of God's love for the world, then it is indeed all of his love for all of the world because Jesus does not hold back his life. He doesn't hold back his loving grace in some kind of transactional way that demands that each of us earn it. Jesus' act of sacrificial and redemptive love is the precursor to our response. It doesn't wait on us to be good enough Jesus' love is what has already determined who you are and what you are worth. It has already set the market. You are loved. You are so loved that Jesus would indeed pour out his life in a gracious and redemptive act for you and for you and for you and for all of us together, all of God's beloved ones. Jesus' act of redemptive love foreshadowed in this moment by Mary's act of generous grace reminds us that we have already been completely claimed by God as beloved And that there's always enough love and enough grace for any of us and for all of us together. Not only has that market been set as to what is valuable in this world, but we're also invited to see the way that we're supposed to participate in God's economy in relationship to the value of one another. Mary demonstrates that so clearly. You pour it out. You pour it out. And I know, I know it doesn't make any sense to the way that our economy operates in this world. And it's one of the challenges of being a community of faith and operating in the midst of the economy of this age, all the while called to give witness to the truth of a God who is and who loves all of us. And how to demonstrate what that kingdom love looks like. But in God's economy, which is what the church is here to give witness to, you pour it out. You pour it all out. In God's economy, you give it away. You offer it even when it costs you. In God's economy, you share generously with others, even and especially when they can't return it back to you. In God's economy, we're called to embody gracious love with one another. 
Not so that others can see and declare how amazing we are. Not so that we can get our name in the paper or gain notoriety. In God's economy, we're called to show what grace might look like when it lives with us in the world. I was reminded the other day that sometimes as Christians, we forget where that is. You know, where it is to be living with God's grace at home with us in the world. I was asked to give a ride home to a dear friend and mentor. He'd recently moved from where he had lived most of his life in one part of Atlanta and given his years and given everything that he has been through and given how much things have changed in Atlanta Across the city, I wasn't surprised when he said what he said as we were pulling out of the parking lot. But he said to me, Matt, I can't tell you how to get me home. Do you know the way? I don't have a clue. I have a clue. And Mary had a clue. And I bet you have a clue as well. You pour it out. You offer what you have, whatever you have, everything you have to the one who has already offered his loving grace for you. What could be worth more? And as we do... Others will see and know. And the scent of God's kingdom coming nearer will perfume the world. May it be so for all of us as we journey together in these days of Lent. Amen and amen. Thanks for joining us. If you live in the Atlanta area or visiting Atlanta, come and worship with us in person on Sundays at Second Ponce de Leon Baptist Church.